They're like freaking out in the sound booth. Start over. People at home are like, I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> okay, so we overcorrect. And a lot of times how this happens is, especially in terms of conflict, you know, a lot of times in conflict we, we have one extreme of avoidance. Let's ignore it. Let's just hope it goes away. Let's not cause a stir. And then if that doesn't work, what happens? Let's swing all the way over to the other side of let's get really aggressive about it. And we're going to hammer and we're going to make it change. We're going to do this. And both of those are not good. There really is the way of grace that involves both love and accountability at the same time. You know those two are not mutually exclusive? Love and accountability, in fact, they work together. Love and accountability are, are two hands folded together that honor God. And we're going to see that this week in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where the Apostle Paul kind of continues down. You remember, the, he had to deal with a lot of you know, very deep problems in the Corinthian church. And some of it was to the point where people were challenging his authority and they were, you know, leading people, they were divided, and, and there were people that were there genuinely kind of coming against Paul. And it stirred up so much trouble that Paul had to write a letter. And you remember in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who's Peter? We're, we're all under Christ. And choosing sides of who you're going to follow doesn't help the body of Christ. And he had to really kind of hammer that home about a message of unity. And he had to call them to repentance. And in large part, he also had to tell them in some parts, you know, to expel people from the church for a time because of their unrepentant hearts. That he said, don't associate with them, withdraw from them. Now, that seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? You know, some days today we might well think, Where, where's grace in that? Well, what Paul had to do at first was to show them that this sin was completely unacceptable. They couldn't tolerate it. They couldn't look the other way. They couldn't avoid it. It had to be dealt with. It had to be exposed as unacceptable. And the body itself had to back him up on that. That the, the church in Corinth had to draw the line and say, look, there's, this is unacceptable. Now, we're not talking everybody kind of looking, you know, over everybody's shoulder and, and being legalistic about, well, that's wrong, that's wrong. We're talking this was, this was gross sin that was being embraced and tolerated within the church that was hurting the body. Stuff that they really should have known better than, and they were tolerating it. And so Paul had to draw a hard line, and eventually they listened, and they did exactly what he said they expelled people from the church. They, they kind of got their house in order. But what do you think they did? They took it too far then. <laughs> and, and they continued to just kind of drop the hammer on these people and, and, and wouldn't do it. So now Paul has to bring the other side of this and grace into it. So I want you to listen in 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 5, where he says, Now if anyone has caused pain. He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. 
For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. One of the things that Paul really wants to show us here is that what affects one affects many. If we are truly the body of Christ and we are members together of, of his body with Christ being the head and everybody else being attached and, and part of the body united by the spirit of God, then that means what happens to you affects me. What happens to me, what I do affects you. We are that united. And so when these problems in a church body arise, we can't just say, well, it's just this one person. Because what they do affects everyone. What you do affects everyone. What everyone does affects you. And we, this is something that I really think we struggle with a lot in today's culture. Just in our world, we don't get this idea of interconnectedness at, at this point. And it's, it's not, you know, malicious. It's not that we're doing it in, on purpose. But we, we have such an individualistic society that we just don't see how everything can affect others at that point. I remember reading a book called Dissident Discipleship. And in that book, he describes, the author describes what true spirituality, what Christian spirituality should look like. And... You know, most of the time we we take what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's about you and God, and it's about you in Christ and my relationship to Him. That's what matters. And it and it does. But there are two greatest commandments. Do you remember? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the you know, part one A, B? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus doesn't rank these as one and two. They ask him, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second is like it. So a second greatest commandment. So we've got to look at these as equal. Now, how many of us really think that way? How many of us relate loving God with everything we have and loving our neighbor as ourselves as equal in our lives? That's a tough one. Like we, we, we want, we're good with God. I love God. God is in my life. And, and, and without him, I wouldn't be any. But if we're really loving God, then in time, love of neighbor will appear. Because we can't love God and hate our brother at the same time. We just can't do it. John tells us that in, in 1 John. He says, you cannot love God whom you have not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen. It doesn't work that way. And that's a really tough thing for us in our culture to, to grab hold of. But that's exactly what Paul is telling everybody here. Listen again to what he says. He says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, 
Remember, Paul was at the center of this. There were people genuinely coming against him. Okay, there were people in this church saying he's not an apostle, he's not qualified, you shouldn't listen to him. I mean, this is a huge rift that's happening with people attacking him personally. Personally. And what does Paul say immediately? Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me. He's taking the high road here. He's like, this isn't about me. I'm not trying to get even. But in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. He says, this that has happened affects everybody. This pain, this division has has affected everyone. Nobody's immune to this. Now, were there individuals in Corinth who were clearly in the wrong? Yes. And they needed to repent, and and Paul called them to repent. He, He didn't call them out by name, but it was one of those. He described what was happening well enough. It's like everybody was like knew, oh, it's you. (laughs) You know, it's that they're reading 1 Corinthians, and it's like they just turn and look. I think this is about you, Bob. You know, (laughs) it's and so they they challenged the story. They tolerated sin. They celebrated sin, and it had to be dealt with it had to be called out but when it was they actually repented they changed what they were doing and so at that point paul has to show them this isn't just about one or two people being right or wrong this was not just a few people versus everyone else or him versus all the people that are wrong what did he do he had to draw this all back together to say look this is about us as the body of Christ. This isn't just a single out a few people because, you know, let's just be honest. We like being right, don't we? I mean, we like being right. And we want to be on the right side of things. And, and if somebody's got some kind of theology that's wrong, you know, we want to correct and we want to be right. Let's be right. But, you know, if you're truly right with the Lord, unity becomes a chief goal of what we do. And if we have a mentality of I have to be right all the time, it's not that we tolerate sin. Remember, he did draw a line. But if we have to be right all the time, we're going to sacrifice unity to be right. And remember, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. We can have love and accountability together and glorify God and grow together at the same time. But that requires a few things to happen, and Paul even shows us that. One of those is we have to learn to develop a thick skin within ourselves. And I think about this. We have to learn individually to develop a thick skin within the church. Because, look, there's no way around it. If we're you know, a, a body of, of people who are forgiven of their sin, who, who are not perfect yet. None of us is in heaven yet, so sin is still an issue. It's still there, and we're going to have to deal with it from time to time, and it's going to rear its head, and we're going to have blow-ups. Then people can't be offended by everything. Because if we are, we're never going to have unity. I mean, we just we got to be able to develop a thick skin. And Paul actually, what does he do? He says, look, this isn't about me. This pain, even though he could have played the victim there, he just says, hey, if I've forgiven anything, it's for your sake. Like, he totally just kind of deflects all of this. Now, listen to Proverbs 12, 16. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. 
Could our world benefit from that thinking today? Could our churches benefit from that thinking today? Now, notice it doesn't say they ignore sin and they tolerate sin and and that they go ahead and lower the bar of righteousness and holiness that God has called us to. What does it say they ignore? An insult. The personal attacks, the things that we can look at and say, hey, I take that personally. What does it say? It says the prudent, the wise say, whatever, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I know who I am in Christ, and I'm a part of the body of Christ, and I'm not going to blow this thing up just because my feelings got hurt in a moment. Now, if it's bad enough that you can't let it go, what does Jesus tell us to do? Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go to him one-on-one and show him his fault. It seems so simple, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, I mean, basically, Matthew 5 also says if your brother has something against you and you know it, leave your gift at the altar. Don't worry. Go and work it out. So basically, Jesus is a big proponent of conflict resolution. Like, we got to just be able to work together. And you know what? There's going to be times. I'm going to hurt your feelings. You're going to hurt my feelings. You're going to hurt someone else's feelings. It's going to happen because we're imperfect people. And, you know, there's a lot of different personalities in this room right now. Is there a chance that at some point personalities are going to get crossways? Now, anybody with a family more than one person in the room knows that that's the case. You know, I, you know with, with Baptist life, I kind of had a saying at one time, you know, it's where two or three are gathered, there will be three or four opinions. Because somebody's going to change their mind midstream. It's just the way it's going to work. And so we have to learn to just work it out and work together. And so here we see Paul, he's saying, look, this affects all of us. And he writes this this letter, kind of bringing the temperature down and like, hey, let's it's okay. It's okay. Y'all don't need to 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 hate this person. They messed up and we called them to account, but it's over. And what does he do? He challenges him and says, hey, love him, (laughs) comfort him. You know, take that step. And so we all have this responsibility to be accountable for our contributions to the health of the body. And Paul tells him that. He says, what? He, he first had to force them, literally. He had to make a painful visit to him. He had to have a painful letter. He, I mean, he had to work really hard to, like, you have to address this sin. You cannot let it go. And it's like pulling teeth with them to get them to finally do something. And then when they do, what do they do? They overdo it. <laughs> and they go too far. And so now he has to write and he says, okay, okay, you did it. Now, love him. Because we are the body. And what happens to one affects all. And we can't live in constant conflict with each other. But we have to hold one another accountable, too, in love. And, and you know, I brought this up last week, and I I touched on it just a little bit last week on purpose, knowing this was coming this week. Accountability is not legalistically looking over everybody's shoulder trying to find out what they're doing wrong. That's not what we're talking about. We we are not to be fault finders as Christians. Anybody ever been around the fault finders in, in the Christian church? You know, I mean, it, 
It's great if you're writing a term paper and you need someone to find, you know, to edit it for you. But when it's your life up there and they're just nitpicking every little thing that they can, that gets old, right? You know, and Paul tells us in Romans 14, he says, look, who are you to judge another person's servant? They live or fall, they, they rise or fall, stand or fall before their God. So it's not up to us to fix each other on every little thing that we think we see wrong. That's not our job. But there does have to be a line, right? Can you all agree with me? There does have to be a line that if sin reaches a crescendo, it reaches a point that we see it affecting the body, we see people genuinely walking out of fellowship with God, embracing something that is sinful, that goes beyond my personal preferences and goes into we are violating biblical principles, we all have a responsibility to react to that, to call that person back to righteousness. And this is something that has been lost in today's church. It's just a modern church. We just don't understand how to do this anymore. And the reason is our culture has become so emotional and reactive that we take offense at everything and then we overreact to everything. And so we either choose to completely ignore it or we swing that pendulum hard the other direction and we become legalistic and mean-spirited. Both of those are failures for what God wants. What does God want when we have to address sin? Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, now that word caught, we go to like, oh, we caught you. That's not what he's talking about, okay? It's the idea of being overtaken and entangled. So again, we're not keeping the eagle eye out for like, who's sinning? Who can I catch? That's not what he's talking about. It's the idea of just being tangled up in it. It has overtaken them, and, and now they're, they're in a sense a slave to it. Like they, they can't get free on their own. And when it, that, that becomes obvious, right? I mean, we just see it in a person's life. And he says, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Say it. Gentleness. Gentleness. Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Not harsh judgment but gentleness, but restore them, like draw the line, this is unacceptable, we have to do better, you, you have to walk with God, this is sin, and you got to repent, but we're not here to try to beat the sin out of you, <laughs> okay, that, and, and you know, that's just, we, we kind of get that mentality sometimes in, in, in church that, oh, well, you, you know, I'll make them, I'll make them, well, you're not going to make them do anything, Jesus didn't make people repent, did he? No, people repented because he loved them. He told them their sin was wrong. He showed them their sin was wrong. And they felt convicted because he loved them in the process of doing that. And he would tell them, now go sin no more. Like, stop doing what you're doing and go. But then what does he say? He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, the spirit of gentleness is a spirit of humility in which we realize any of us at any time can get tangled up in a sin. A amen? We, we can. And if we think we're immune, 
you better keep watch on yourself because Satan loves when Christians start feeling immune to sin. When we start feeling like we're beyond it, it couldn't happen to me. Satan's like, oh, I've got a surprise for you. We're ready now. And so what is this really about? Because if it affects everybody, then that means holiness and and righteousness are something we need to guard and we need to strive for within the church. Together, we need to encourage each other in it. We need to to keep watch over each other's souls just in, in the encouragement and exhortation. And so this is about repentance and restoration. Repentance and restoration. See, what did Paul tell them? He says, for such a one. Now, he's talking about one of these people that they've been expelled. They, they've had to feel, in a sense, the wrath of, of what was coming. You know, their, their sin did eventually kind of fall on their own head, and they felt it. And he says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Paul had worked very hard to correct the issues. But the goal of accountability is not to catch them in their sin. What is the goal of accountability? Godliness. And godliness is what? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Loving your neighbor as yourself. That is godliness in this world. You know, love does no harm to its neighbor. If I truly love my neighbor as myself, I can't covet their goods. I can't, I can't steal. I can't lie to them. I mean, go down the Ten Commandments, and if you genuinely love a person, you won't do any of those things. That's why it just says, love your neighbors yourself. You do that, you're going to do what's good for them. You're going to pray for them. You're going to encourage them. You're going to be there to support them when they need it. That's what this is about. And when people fall short of that and they need help, that's what the body of Christ is to be there to do. To be a support that, that again, sets their sights on a worthy goal and and a worthy place to strive in holiness and help them get the strength and wisdom and encouragement necessary to push them back in that direction. If we don't have a goal of godliness, then our goal is going to turn into control. And you know what? Control always ends badly, doesn't it? My goal as your pastor is not to control you. You know, I've been in churches where they wanted that. They genuinely did. They, they, I, I was told, you know, I love your preaching. The Bible lessons are great, but we need some good old-fashioned preaching. And I said, I don't even know what that means. I'm trying to call you to obedience to Scripture. What, what does that mean? And basically what they wanted me to do was tell them all the bad things in the world they shouldn't do. And you know why? Because it took them off the hook. It took them off the hook for their own discipleship. It took them off the hook for their own behaviors. Just, well, the preacher told me and they could feel good about it. I'm not ever going to do that. So if somebody here wants that, then that's not going to happen. But our goal 
when we do, you know, any of us falls below the line uh, and sin has overtaken, our goal is always restoration. Always. It's not punishment. It, it's, it's not shame and guilt. It is restoration. Now, can we restore a person who refuses to repent? No. It, it, we just can't. But when a person shows a willingness to confront their sin, and they're willing to enter into the battle against it, the church should rally right behind them at that moment and say, yes, we are here for you in this battle. Because look, the battle against sin is a tough one, isn't it? Can we, can we agree? Yeah, it's hard. And none of us has figured it out completely. None of us has mastered that battle this side of earth. They're all going to have struggles. We're all going to have struggles. And that's where the body works to build itself up. That I'm, I, I help you. You help me. But we cannot have this idea of controlling each other or trying to force each other into righteousness. We have to love one another into it. We have to walk with God together. And then when something does happen and forgiveness is necessary, we have to understand what forgiveness really is. Anybody in here ever had somebody tell you, I forgive you, but you could tell they really didn't? That's a tough place to live, isn't it? I mean, that's hard. And so today, I'm going to share with you what we call the four promises of forgiveness. When we forgive somebody, biblically speaking, these four things are going to take, this is, this is how you know when forgiveness is real. Okay, number one, I will not dwell on this incident. When we forgive somebody, it's over, right? It should be. Now, that doesn't mean that we're saying it's okay. Please don't hear me and say that, you know, forgive and forget. No, but not dwelling on something, you know, we can, we can spin ourselves up, make ourselves mad, right? We can keep reliving something in our own mind where if we've forgiven them, we are making the choice not to continue to relive what that was. We are choosing not to dwell on the hurt, on the offense. Second, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. That's a tough one, isn't it? How many, you know, we like to keep score sometimes, right? Go ahead and write that down for later use. Put it in our pocket, file it away for opportune moments. No, forgiveness what did God say? He says, I will remember your sins no more. God doesn't bring up past sins he's forgiven you for. Have you ever noticed that? You don't go to God and pray and he's like, look, this is the 897th time. My limit's 900, so you're almost there. God doesn't do that. He forgives us and we move on. And so that's the model that we have to be able to adopt for ourselves is that I will not bring it up. I will not talk to others about this incident. That is a true, genuine promise of forgiveness. You know, you could tell a person, I forgive you to your face, and then if you go talk to nine people about it and let them know how, how upset you are, guess what? You haven't forgiven them yet. And that's kind of what was happening here in Corinth. And that's why he said what? Paul told him, he says, I need... Love him, reaffirm him, reaffirm your love, 
welcome him back into the group, or he may be overcome by excessive sorrow. Paul was concerned for the well-being of everyone, even the person who was the offender in this instance. Paul wanted him to repent. He didn't want him to suffer. And we've got to know the difference in our own hearts between calling someone to account biblically and just wanting our pound of flesh because they made us mad. And we have to know that difference. We have to know that difference. When we turn and make it personal, we've, we've entered into sin ourselves. And that's why Paul says what? He says, take heed lest you yourself, you watch yourself in this process because you're not immune to this. And then finally, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. That's when you know you've forgiven someone is that they are welcome at your dinner table after the offense in the same way they were before the offense. That is true forgiveness. Now, this is forgiveness after a person has repented. Please hear that. In Corinth here, this person has changed their ways. They have repented. They've turned. And at that point, he says, we need to move forward. I am not telling you that if somebody is still offending against you, if they are still sinning against you, that you have to just keep taking it. No, you can draw that line of accountability and say, this is unacceptable, and I'm not going, you know, we're not going to continue forward in a relationship until this changes. You know that is biblical. And we, we feel like sometimes, well, I'm not being, you know, I'm not being a good Christian if I do that. No, you are being a good Christian. If they are a believer and they are in open sin and it, you see it and you call them to account for it and they refuse to repent, God, does God forgive us if we refuse to repent? No. You know, repentance is, is us coming to God and saying, I need a Savior. My sin has separated me from you. I have to be born again. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. I mean, repentance is this whole acknowledgement of everything we've done wrong and everything God has done for us. That's what salvation is. And if we aren't willing to enter into that, we're not saved. And if that is the model for our lives, then we need to accept that. We don't have to allow people to continue. Now, again, we don't get revenge. We don't take vengeance. But we can draw a line of accountability. Because if we don't, we will sacrifice spiritual power in our lives and in our church. Okay? And don't sacrifice your spiritual power. How does Paul finish this? Listen, he says, Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, now, this is important, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. He says, I forgive because I'm not going to let Satan win. I forgave everybody in Corinth. <laughs> Everything that happened, Paul's writing now just saying, basically, look, it's over. People have repented. It's done. We're all together in this. Unity is happening. And, and notice how, I mean, we're only two chapters in and how much he just keeps stressing unity. That what happens to one happens to all. We, we are all together in the body of Christ. He keeps stressing that. 
But here he's, he's just letting everybody know. There's more at stake here than just whether or not we're getting along. Unity isn't just, you know, hey, we can all get along together. Unity is spiritual power experienced together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we cannot sacrifice that. And that's what Paul wants. Or Paul, that's what Satan wants us is to sacrifice that power on the altar of being right, on the altar of division, uh, of, uh, of whatever selfish thing we can do. Satan will get in, and that's what he tries to do is to get us to divide over issues that don't matter and get us to ignore issues that do matter. And that's why Paul says we are not ignorant of his designs. You see, Paul isn't leading them to perfection here. He's not, he's not calling every person out into this, you know, well, you sinned and you sinned and you sinned and you sinned. He's not doing it. What does he say? He says, hey, forgive. I've forgiven. You all should forgive. I'm forgiving for your sake. You all love him. He's calling them to unity because he is calling them to faithfulness, to gospel repentance, forgiveness, and redemption. The pattern of the Christian life. We will repeat that pattern in our lives and in our churches over and over and over again. And when we know the pattern, we start to see it emerge in Scripture in the way he calls us to to live. What is faithfulness to gospel repentance, gospel forgiveness, and gospel redemption? Gospel repentance. We have to draw the line of accountability. Sin is unacceptable. And when it just continues without struggle and and is accepted and welcomed into a body, into a church, it has to be dealt with. And when repentance happens, what are we to do? We are to forgive. And after forgiveness happens, then redemption, restoration happens, and we move forward. And it's through this repeated process in our lives where sometimes we'll be the recipient of that, sometimes we will be those who give that. It's going to happen over and over and over. That is where we grow spiritually. And when we understand that, we can get rid of this accomplishment mindset that spiritual growth happens when I get more perfect. That's not how it works. One of Satan's designs is for us to think, I'll arrive. I'll I'll get good enough that I won't have to deal with any of this anymore. You know what? Until your dying day, this gospel pattern of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration is going to repeat itself until the day you die. It's not about attaining perfection. It's about gospel faithfulness and engaging in that process over and over and over. And when we refuse to engage in that process, when we short-circuit it at any point, we refuse to repent, we refuse to forgive, we refuse to restore That's where we sacrifice spiritual power in our lives. That's where we stop moving. And God will just let us sit there and wait until we engage again. And what happens in that is, I've seen it too many times. 
is when people will pour themselves into Bible study themselves, but have no relationships with others to speak of. And so they, I know God, I know God, and I'm going to pay attention to God, and I'm going to really work on my relationship with God. But the ironic thing is that when we really work on our relationship with God, what's one of the first things he tells us to do? Hey, go work on your relationship with other people. Go love them. Go love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, but God, I don't like them right now. But I really like you, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stay over here and hang out with you for a while. And he says, okay, you can hang out. But as long as you're hanging out, why don't you go get someone to come hang out with us? No, not yet? Okay, well, go ahead and read some scripture. And Hey, why don't you read this one? And you read, and it says what? Love your neighbors yourself. And you're like, God, can we talk about something else? He says, no. No, because I really want you to forgive. And I want you to have restoration happen in your life. And I want you to have these relationships in which you both follow me. And eventually we either give in or we become stiff-necked and we dig in our heels. And we waste years of our lives fighting against it. It's one or the other. And so today my call to you is make sure you're not stuck on one of those steps, refusing to do it. Refusing accountability or refusing forgiveness or refusing restoration. Look over those four promises of forgiveness and see if maybe you've refused one of those and you've withheld forgiveness from another person simply because it's, it's more fun to talk about them than it is to let it go and restore them to a good relationship. Forgiveness is serious business, and it's what God does with us, and it's what we're to do with each other. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day you've given us, and God, thank you for the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ. God, thank you that you have shared of your grace and your love in such a way that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can separate us from you. God, I pray that that gospel truth would become the bedrock for how we build and work towards relationships in this world. God, that your forgiveness and grace would become staples of the relationships we have with other believers in this world. God, that our relationships would be so strong, so loving and forgiving, that the world would look and know those are followers of Jesus because of how they love you, because of how they love each other. That the world would recognize us by our love for one another. God, I pray if there are broken relationships, God, that, Lord, you would lead us to to redeem them, to forgive. God, if it's accountability in our own lives that we need, God, that we wouldn't be afraid or prideful, God, that we would, we would own up to it, God, and fix relationships that may be broken because of it. God, soften our hearts towards each other. 
that God strengthen our resolve towards righteousness and holiness. God, that love and accountability would would work together in our lives and not be separated. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray this. Amen.